0: the Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Ryan Sprague is a fellow podcaster, fellow author, as well as my friend. He wrote a book titled Somewhere in the Skies with the subtitle A Human Approach to an Alien Phenomenon, and during this interview we talk a lot about that book. And Somewhere in the Skies is also the name of his podcast series. And we begin the interview with some podcasting talk. We compare and contrast some of what's involved with creating an online radio show like this. And his show is very similar to the show you're listening to right now, my show. Now, this part of the interview might be a little off topic as far as the paranormal, but it doesn't take long until we're up to speed and we start digging into Ryan's work and research, which is very interesting. This conversation was recorded Friday, March 27th, 2020. Please enjoy. Ryan, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me.
1: Absolutely, man. It's been a long time coming, and uh, you are one of those people that I always trust with information,
0: both consuming it and giving it to. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks. And we, so just so the audience knows, we know each other and we've known each other for a while. And I purposely wrote down very few questions for this interview because I felt like we wouldn't need a big long list of questions. And, and usually I'm a little overprepared and I'll write too many questions and I won't get to all of them. So I think I wrote very few and we still probably won't get to all of them. Yeah, the, such is the phenomenon, right? <laughs> hey, it is March 27th, 2020. And you are living in New York City in what may be the strangest chapter of the city's history. What is going on? What's it like being there? That is a great question. I mean, you know,
1: everyone around the country is dealing with this in their own ways. But here in New York, I will tell you this, Mike, it is eerily quiet, unlike anything I've experienced in almost 12 years of living here. So, I mean, I can hear... A pin drop outside i can hear people's voices from like two three blocks away in their apartments that's how quiet it is so you know it's it's for the better everyone indoors and quarantined and practicing all the safe
0: isolations and everything so but you're still going out right you still have to go out and get groceries and leave the house Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, I think a lot of people picture it as some sort of thunderdome, <laughs> you know, scenario. But no, we are allowed to leave. We are on a, a quote unquote lockdown. But, you know, groceries, doctor's appointments, um, you can take your dogs for a walk or take your, your significant other for a walk, as it were. But, um, you might be questioned. There is a lot of extra law enforcement out right, right now trying to, um, stamped down on that. And I don't blame them. I, I think it's for the better. And um, I'm just taking it one day at a time, I'm sh- as I'm sure you are and everyone else.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Andrea and I live, we you know exactly where we live. And, and it is pretty darn quiet up here. Certainly, the schools are closed and a lot of stores are closed. And and um, there ain't a whole lot of traffic and stuff like that. But, but it feels surprisingly calm and safe here. Uh, and everyone is being, as far as I can tell, quite quite concerned, even in this very small town.
1: Yeah, and I do feel the same here, Mike. You know, at first we got a lot of flack for people still congregating in parks and basketball courts and and everything else. But I have been seeing people taking this very seriously, helping one another out. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of of beauty going around the world right now uh, with such a horrendous thing happening. And that's kind of all we can ask for at this point.
0: I agree. I agree. Good. I just wanted to check in on that and just make sure you and Jane were we're doing well and we're safe. So
1: thank you. I really appreciate that. And same to you and and everyone up there. Like I said, we're all dealing with it our own ways. And I think podcasting is a great, great way to not just distract ourselves from the, the barrage of news and negativity, but uh to bring something to people that don't have to think about this pandemic for at least an hour. So, yeah, I see it as our our responsibility to continue doing what we're doing, because, uh, you know, we might be in a
0: weird time, but that does not stop these phenomena from occurring. I mean, there's two things going on. I guess there's sort of an educational quality to these things. But also, oh, I think just these stories need to be shared, if you know what I mean. Absolutely.
1: I think they, they have to be shared. The more we understand one another and
0: communicate, uh, I think the better we're all going to be for it. Yeah. I mean, the people who have these stories need to tell them on some level, even if they tell them with a pseudonym or, and I think my sense very strongly is that people are hungry to hear these stories.
1: Yes. I, I would have to agree. I think everyone wants to have some sort of paranormal experience or ufo experience and then when you really start to dig in it's uh it's pretty crazy and astounding how many
0: people actually have i would be very cautious to say that people want to have these things they may want to see it way off in the distance but wow um i know a lot of people who have been you know had a really hard time with this as, as well as myself at a certain chapter of my life i feel like i've crossed a line somewhere and i'm i'm much much calmer at this point now than i would have been a decade ago
1: Yeah, that is a really good point. And, you know, I guess sort of correcting myself. I know a lot of people who do say they wish these things happened and people like yourself and others I've spoken to have said, no, you absolutely do not.
0: So no, uh, fair point. Absolutely. Hey, you are a podcaster. I am. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about your podcast.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I've been doing the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. Uh, almost, I'm almost about 160 episodes in at this point, main episodes. I also do bonus episodes, um uh, other sort of small mini episodes and audio docs on my feed as well. But I started the Somewhere in the Skies podcast to sort of pick up where my book of the same name left people hanging. So I wanted to continue that in podcast form. So it's a world I, uh, I didn't know anything about, Mike, but I learned and stumbled along the way and people still seem to want to listen. So it's, uh, it's great. I, I, I don't know what I would be doing without it at this point. And do you edit your shows? Yeah, absolutely. I, I edit almost every one of my episodes. And, you know, when I first started, it was a very, big learning curve for me. I was taking out every breath that a guest or I made or every single um or uh, and it got to the point where it was just driving me crazy. And when I actually sat down and listened to the podcasts I like to listen to, it was conversational. You feel like you're in the room with those people and you want to be a part of that. So as I kind of grew, I started to just kind of let it flow a little more. And uh, I was surprised at how how much more feedback I got after that. People saying, you know, I felt like I was actually in the room with you. It wasn't as, um, you know, polished as what you did at the beginning. So things things work differently for every podcaster. And um,
0: yeah, I, I would say I'm still learning to this day. Now, what I do heavily, and I've said this many times before, is I, I edit my own voice. That's the one I'm more concerned about than my guest is my own voice. But I do try to streamline the narratives, and I've gotten very good at playing um, if the conversation strays just a little bit and then comes back. I just get rid of that little stray there and just snip it out. You must know just what I mean.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I come from a playwriting background where, you know, structure... And format means everything. So I I sort of, I know what you mean. There's some times where we sort of veer off and that's okay. Like those conversations have to be had. But if they're not, you know, speaking to the topic at hand uh, directly, I will do the same thing many, many times. And uh, you'll notice a lot of times you don't even have to edit those tangents because uh, it all becomes part of the bigger story. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Hey, here's a question. Who do you want to interview that you haven't interviewed yet?
1: I, you are the, the first person who's ever asked me that. And, um, there's a gentleman named Deep Prasad who I have had on my show before, but, uh, yeah, he's a quantum physicist of all things. And
0: and he had the, um, the being show up like full daylight in his office. If I'm remembering this correctly, like, yeah. So he, he came
1: forward a few months ago, uh, I would say at this point and did say that he had some sort of experience now, whether it was in a state of dreaming or in between sleeping and waking or happened in the physical reality as he knows it, uh, I' still up for question, and he doesn't pretend to have an answer to if it happened or not, but uh yeah, it was pretty astounding when he put his you know put his reputation on the line to come forward with that. He just went on Twitter, he just twittered it. It was. It was like a big Twitter uh, rant, I guess you could say. But um, what better way to get it out there, I guess.
0: I mean, it's. I just turned the clock back 25 years or so or 30 years like that. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have the Internet. And I think that, wow, if someone had that experience, they would shut up. <laughs> exactly. And, and so yeah. I'm just like, wow, this is a different world where someone, he must be in his 20s maybe. Yeah,
1: Brilliant, brilliant young guy. He's the CEO of his own company. Well, I guess he can do yeah, that. Uh, you can't
0: yeah. get, you can get fired if you do that. Yeah. For me it just says that we're in a the times have changed is what it tells me. Absolutely. Times have changed and these topics are becoming more and more
1: acceptable, I believe. They're not quite where I personally want them to be yet, but uh hey, we'll
0: take what we can get. Do you catch yourself talking over folks? Sometimes there's like a lag in Skype or something like that, and you kind of walk over folks. I feel so bad when I do that. Oh yeah, all those things
1: happen, you know, and uh, you just sort of you sort of deal with it. I have noticed that if you do a video with a person, it's a lot easier to sort of see, you know, if they're about to talk or um, kind of how they're feeling through their
0: facial, uh, you know. It's almost like facial recognition. Oh, um... yeah, that's totally. That makes perfect sense, yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Hey, let's get into the meat of this discussion, which goes well beyond the role of podcaster. And for now, let's take our very first break, and we will be back in a few minutes. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking to my friend Ryan Sprague, and we are talking about... The challenges as well as the rewards of digging into this kind of research and these kind of studies and these very personal studies. Ryan, I'm going to ask you a question that I am quite certain you have answered many, many times before, but I need to ask it. You've witnessed a UFO. I have, yes. I would love to hear that story. I've actually never, you and I have never talked about this. Really? Never. Okay.
1: All right. Well, this is a good time to start, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I did have a UFO sighting when I was 12 years old. And, uh, this happened up in, I guess you could call it central New York, uh, in off the St. Lawrence River, Mike. It was, um, 1995 and I was fishing with my parents. The, the part of the river that we were at, it actually just separated New York State from Canada. I could see Canada on the other side and. I would go out every evening, sort of as it was turning dark, and uh I would fish when I would go on these sort of weekend getaways with my parents. And we were staying at this motel, and it had a dock right on the water, and just fish for hours. I absolutely loved doing it. And um there was one night when we were up there, and I was reeling my line in, and I saw like lights in the water, and I had absolutely no idea what it was. Uh, why it was there. So I kind of bent down and looked in the water and I noticed, oh, it was actually a reflection above me. So I get up and I, uh, I look up in the sky and directly above me, I I don't know how many feet or anything like that, Mike, but, um, it was a triangular formation of white lights with that sort of typical red hazy light in the middle. And, uh, It was just a formation. I didn't see any machinery. I didn't see anything connecting these lights, but it was a perfect triangle, and it was just hovering above me.
0: And and is this daylight or nighttime?
1: This is, it had just turned dark, so I I would go in from fishing when it turned dark. I just didn't like being out there at night, and yeah, it it terrified me. I had absolutely no idea what I was looking at. It made no sound, and there was nothing. I could just kind of hear the water hitting the dock at that point whatever this thing was above me there was no uh sound or propulsion anything like that and i i kind of just stared up at it for god i don't know maybe it was like a minute or two felt like forever but um i yelled for my dad to come out to see this thing i i could like literally see him in the motel the door was open i could see his feet on the bed and i started yelling for him to come outside to see this thing and i'm not kidding you he gets up and he starts rushing out. He thought maybe I fell in the water or something. And as he was coming out, the formation started going over the water and it went towards Canada. And my dad did see it. Now, this wasn't something of my imagination. Uh, it wasn't any sort of aircraft I knew of or anything like that. And, um, he was a little, little mystified. He tried to calm me down and he said, it's probably a plane, but, there was something in his face, Mike. I just remember, like, it was the first time I saw my dad not be, like, the dad that you would expect. <laughs> he, you know, it, he looked scared and he looked sort of like, uh, really uneasy. So it disappeared out of sight. Um, we saw it go, like, disappeared right where the, the water sort of met the sky. And, um, that was it, man. I, I have no idea what it was. I can't pretend to know what it was, but it scared the crap out of me, and I had nightmares about it after that for many years, and then that's when I started looking at all the UFO books. This thing never really left me.
0: Well, I understand that, because I, too, had a sighting when I was 12, and this is one of the things I pay attention to, that age of 12, I'm hypersensitive to it, so, I mean, a lot of people see UFOs at all ages, but I'm very sensitive to that number and that age, and I... I recognize it when I hear it, and and I remember afterwards, I was just like, you know, I was kind of into UFO books, and, and, and just peripherally in elementary school, let's say, because I guess I was in junior high school 12 years ago. 12 years old, I would have been in junior high school. So, uh, but I, I just remember thinking, um, you know, you'd read these reports, and they sound outrageous and absurd, and, and then all they had to do was say, well, I... Saw something that's outrageous and absurd and 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 I really saw it. I truly saw it, and I was with the, I, I too was with the, i had a second witness, so yeah, this is very i mean this is these these events will forever change you
1: oh absolutely if there's anything i've learned uh that that's what my whole book was based on the implication to having these sightings and finding other people who've had them to connect to because I felt so alone for so long. I don't know about you, but I couldn't talk to anyone about it. You know, every time I brought it up with my dad, he'd just say like, oh, yeah, let's not talk about that. Well, wait
0: a minute. What about your dad now? Now that you've like turned your life over and have books and podcasts and go to conferences and you know, now what does he say? Oh, things have changed immensely, especially
1: I'm so happy you brought that up, like especially after the the, uh, New York Times article came out. You know, I'd been on the lecture circuit before that. I'd written the book and he'd come and seen me speak a few times. But it wasn't until that article came out and it hit the mainstream like never before. And I think really shifted the, the collective consciousness on this topic and the acceptance of it. And he, he knew he couldn't deny it anymore. So I remember after that article came out, I went home and we were at a bar having a beer. And uh he just unraveled, man. He started asking me about everything I'd been doing, and it, are these things real, and what did I know? He was genuinely curious, and I'd never heard him that excited to talk about anything before,
0: let did, alone UFOs. Did you tell Leslie Keen that when you talked with her?
1: Oh, yeah. Huh? Yeah, I told her that this was a big deal for me, and I... You know, she knows that the article made waves, but I, I, I do wonder how many people she really knows that it touched them in that way and opened the doors for them to come out with their own sightings or, or whatnot. It, it was a big,
0: a big shift, whether uh, people think it was or not. I know it's interesting from from my from where I'm at, and I'd already been immersed, like, totally immersed in in the subject. It wasn't that big of a deal for me, and I and I was just like some like tic-tac thing and like, come on, you know, like I'm talking to people who've had like these outrageous spiritual awakenings and, and had these mythic, trippy, transcendent life altering experiences with, with some force. And, and, and I'm, I gotta be really careful what I say cause I'm going to sound all jaded or something like that, but I, I, I can't get all that excited about people who see, you know, a, seeing an object in the sky.
1: I, I completely understand what you're saying, Mike. I too I've heard so many stories that, you know, are far more dramatic than the tic tac UFO and everything. And what I try to keep in mind, at least for myself personally, is this is one event and one angle that a certain I would say investigative group is looking at when it comes to military sightings and encounters and uh and one narrative. So like you, I try to stress to people, yeah, Navy pilots saw a UFO. I've got a hundred more cases to put on top of just that one, as I know you do. Thousands at this point for you. So it's interesting. Um, I think for the, the people who don't look into this topic as much as we do and live and breathe it every day, uh, they have to take it very bit and parcel. And, uh, I, I, I don't blame them for that. I, you know, if it all came out, you, at once it could overwhelm people so hopefully one person at a time these stories will start to make sense and uh we can all start talking about it more
0: i know i feel like i've i feel like i've distanced myself from the mainstream ufo kind of research community in a sense i'm I, this is incredibly personal for me doing this kind of stuff doing this podcast doing the books like i want to i want to go into the deepest waters and i i'm sure i've been you know way off base at times as far as the the, the threads i've pulled on and and I'm certain I've gone down some blind alleys, but this is personal. This is, I'm selfish. This show I'm doing right now is selfish. This is for me, this show. The books are for me. <laughs> and I'm I'm going to do my own research to satisfy myself. I'm not going to try to satisfy the New York Times. But, you know, it's all fair and good that they they put those articles out there. Hey, I'm going to take us onto our second break. This is a really good spot that we're going to do it a little bit early. I'm going to take us out on our second break. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am speaking with my friend Ryan Sprague, and we are talking about his research and his book, Somewhere in the Skies. I want to ask about one chapter. I read the book when it came out, and I just reviewed it the last couple days just before talking with you now. Chapter 12 is titled, A Mother's Prayer. That story really shook me up. And at the same time, it, it sort of represented exactly the strangeness I was trying to articulate just before the break. Yeah, could you talk about that chapter?
1: Absolutely. This this is one of those chapters, Mike, that uh, really left a lasting impact on me. First and foremost, because I am still working with this experiencer on her developing experiences. But this was sort of her initial experience. It happened in 2006 in Michigan, and she actually lives right near the water, you know, Lake Michigan, and she was taking her dogs out one night for a walk, and they wouldn't leave the porch, and they'd never really done anything like this before, acted this way. They were just very hesitant to leave the porch, so she thought maybe there was an intruder on the property or just something weird was going on, so she, you know, put them up on the porch. She went down herself, and started looking around, and then she saw above her, there was this triangle just floating effortlessly right above the tree line. And she stopped in her tracks, and she could not believe what she was seeing. She starts yelling for her younger daughter, Jennifer, to come outside as she's watching this triangle hover over, directly over their house. And Jennifer, her daughter, she comes out, and they're both looking up at this thing, and... It was, this is where her story really caught my attention. So Patty's looking up at this triangle, just hanging above her, and she could hear like this low humming or whooshing sound, as she called it. And she looked over at Jennifer. She's like, can you hear that? Can you hear that? And she's like, no, I don't hear anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And then she starts hearing it again, this whooshing, whooshing, whooshing She's like, how can you not hear that? And she looks over and Jennifer has her ears covered. Within seconds of saying she didn't hear anything, she had her ears covered and said, whatever it was, it was unbearably loud. So I don't know what that was all about, but they were both having different perceptions of, at least with hearing, what this craft was doing. And uh, Patty remembered feeling very euphoric as she looked up at it, very calm. This was a beautiful experience. And she looks over, and her daughter is just petrified, and she felt threatened, and like this was the scariest thing ever. So they had completely different experiences looking up at the same thing, and uh, the triangle darted off and disappeared. Now, she did get some photos of this thing. She ran in the house, got her camera, came out, and there are photos of this triangular formation of lights.
0: And have and have you had a chance to review those photos?
1: Yes, they're very compelling. Now, if I'm able to get them uh, from Patty to share with listeners, uh, I will definitely post them at some point. Uh, I just don't physically have them with me, but they were very intriguing, Mike. I'm not going to lie. Some of the best UFO photos I've seen. Again, no structured craft in terms of machinery, but the formation was just... Whatever it was, was... Not a conventional aircraft by any stretch of the imagination. That I know of or she knew of. um. But yeah, that was sort of just the initial experience. They went inside and talked about it for a little bit, but it was a few weeks, I believe a few weeks later, when her younger daughter uh was getting out of bed to use the restroom one night, and she goes out into the hallway to go to the bathroom, and she sees a figure right in front of the hallway where the bathroom was. And she thought it was her sister, so she starts saying, you know, can I go in, can I go in? And whatever was in the hallway turned around, and it was a gray. Just to put it in simple terms, it was a alien gray as we know them, prototypical big eyes, big head, small body. But it had a, a robe on. It was completely clothed, it had a huge hood over it, and it was just staring at her. And she didn't know what to do, Mike, she just panicked she was frozen and then she darted into her room got under the covers and uh stayed under there just hoping that whatever it was would go away and then she heard something coming to her room and again petrified didn't know what to do and then the covers came down off her bed someone pulled the covers down and it was her mom thank god it was her mom uh Her mom asked, what's going on? Are you okay? Are you okay? And she couldn't say anything. Again, she was just sort of frozen. And behind her mom, she could see this being, this figure, come into her bedroom and silently just survey the area, walking around as if it didn't care that the mother was there or if it were to be seen by the mother, and it just wandered the room looking at everything. Finally... The mom says goodnight, she leaves the room, and the being follows the mom out. After that, it just got crazy, Mike. They started having experiences of high strangeness in their home, uh, poltergeist-like activity was happening, the electricity would go out at times, they'd see orbs, they would see everything you can think of. Um, an electrician even came out to the house to fix the electricity one time, and he was up there fixing it, and... He saw a UFO above the house.
0: Oh, that's not in the book. That that part's not in the book.
1: That part is not in the book. She shared that with me afterwards. Um, and he saw it, and he left and said he was never coming back. He'd send someone else. Like, <laughs> yeah, man, it's a crazy story. It's terrifying. Um, but I'm still working with Patty to this day. I mean, she's still having weird stuff happen in the home. Um, sightings of beings, sightings of dark figures, UFOs, everything you can think of. So this was a tough one, man. It was a really tough one to get through and to sort of try to make it somewhat cohesive in terms of putting it in a book. But I will say this, these events usually are very messy. And, uh,
0: sometimes that's the only way we can record them. And, and these young girls, this happened in, in, um, Over a decade ago, this the, the first event of seeing the triangle above the yard. Uh, so the young girls must be adults now.
1: Yes. Yeah, they're both grown up. I believe one of them, the older one, has a, a daughter now. Um, they've all moved out of the house and have their own families. So this is hard. The mom is stuck in the house where all this happened and is still having experiences, whereas the daughters, they were willing to be quoted in my book and talk about the experiences, but then no more. Like, they they wanted to forget about all this, Mike, whereas the mom sort of accepted it, embraced it, and is still trying to figure it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, here's a question. Do you feel a responsibility when you write these stories? I mean, here, let me ask it again. Yeah. What is the weight of that responsibility? That's a better way to say it.
1: It's huge. And, you know, when I first started inquiring with people like oh can i put your story in my book um i think it'll be cool people will like it uh but that was about me that was my interpretation of it they're on the other side of it saying who is this guy um if he puts me in his book like that's it there's no turning back after that your name is out there i refuse to use pseudonyms in the book uh that was something i wanted to do from the very beginning I wanted people to own these experiences and talk about them and sort of shed that ridicule factor, tell people it's okay to talk about it. So, you know, it's it's tough. And you do have a big responsibility when you record these stories, uh, preserve them, and put them out to the public. So I wanted to do that as carefully and as empathetic as I possibly could. Our Our mutual friend, Peter Robbins, is a mentor of mine, and he always told me, if you're going to do this, you have to have empathy with those you interview because that is going to help you immensely. It's going to keep you open minded. Uh, and it's going to, it's going to give you more answers than I think, uh, you could ever truly get by just stating the date, the time something happened and then move on. I really dug into these people's lives, Mike. I mean, I was asking all their family members about what did you think of this person after this happened or how did it change? Your home or your family life or your religion or, you, you know, just the way you handle yourself in public. I wanted to know everything about these people. And, uh, it was a very human story, I think, by the end, where we got this cross section of people from all over the world and how they deal with these things, the aftermath of the experiences rather than just the experience itself.
0: Oh, oh, yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, the way I put it, like every person I talk to, like they they need their own novel.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I I felt bad sort of just doing one chapter on Patty. I could have written a whole book on her. But oh,
0: it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> I know just I know exactly the emotional angst that goes in there. And now, what I did when I was working on my books, especially the second book, uh, which is very similar to yours in a way, where it reads as this as a book of short stories in essence were. And, and my thing was all these people had had owl experiences and that's what I wanted to focus on, but I had them read every chapter and I would not put it out there until I got a thousand percent. Okay. On their part.
1: Oh yeah. And you know, it was scary come publishing time because I had, you know, I, I, I literally reached out to every person in the book weeks before publication and just said, are you Sure. Like, there is no turning back. Once I hand this in to the publisher, like, game over. <laughs> and only one person out of, I'd say, maybe maybe there's about 30 to 40 stories collectively throughout the book, one person dropped out. And I couldn't fault them for that. So, you know, I just took it out and I moved on. I completely understand.
0: I, I know, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm lucky that only one person did that, but... You know, it's, you do have a responsibility. And once the book's out and it's out there, there's no turning back.
0: Just before we started this call, I sent you an email with uh, an excerpt. And this is Patty's story. This is the woman in the chapter, A Mother's Prayer. And and if you could read that quote, it's just a few sentences long, maybe a couple paragraphs.
1: Absolutely, yeah, you did send this to me earlier. I've got it pulled up here. Uh, yeah, so this comes right at near the end of the chapter where I'm kind of reflecting on the entire thing and what Patty told me, so yeah, I'll just read it here. Her final words mirrored those of so many others I've come across when explaining the impact of their experience. She said, quote, These events have had an extremely profound effect on me and how I look at the world. You can't ever go back from the way things were before. It most definitely changed me. End quote. The story of Patty, Jennifer, and Jessica left me at odds, not with their testimony, nor my personal beliefs concerning their deeply intrusive and emotionally draining experiences, but with the clear indication that these women, along with so many other people, were experiencing some of the most profound events a human could. The interaction, Whether they liked it or not, with a possible non human intelligence, presence, or energy. And as with many other experiencers, they tried desperately to piece together an unsolvable puzzle.
0: We are confronting an unsolvable puzzle. I gave up a long time ago. My life got a lot easier when I gave up trying to solve the puzzle, because I don't think we're going to solve it.
1: I would have to agree. It's also one of those puzzles, Mike, where you don't even look at the picture you're doing it the other side and i think once you finally piece it together and turn that thing over you might get the answers you wanted
0: or the picture you wanted or you might not so yeah yeah i was hungry for wanting to get to the answer like i was emotionally a wreck and i wanted to solve it and and that when i wrestled with this enough to know that this is Whatever's going on is so far out there beyond the vanishing point of my of my ability to understand. When I came to peace with that, my life got a lot easier. Mine, too. <laughs> hey, Chapter 13, A Weekend in the Woods. Let's hear about that story. Oh, this one sounds familiar, yeah. I'm in the room where you recorded the—you uh, you did a little recording for me. You read a chapter while you were here. So, yes— Ryan visited um, our home here, Andrea and I, uh, in upstate New York. And uh, Andrea and I run an inn. I'm choosing not to give the name of the inn here on the show for reasons that might become obvious. Uh, So, hey, just a funny thing. When I was looking this up, this happened five years ago this week. Exactly. When you were up here. Really? I didn't even notice that. You're right. Yep, I'm looking at the timeline right now. Wow. Wow. And it was funny because today is Friday, March 27th, and, and turn the clock back, it was Friday, March 27th, five years ago, just the days of the week lined up, and you would have left on the Monday of this week. So it's a f- five years and five days, yeah.
1: <laughs> of course you would be the one to figure that out. That's amazing, Mike. Wow. Well, there's another synchronicity right there. Well, that's
0: a small one. That's a little one. So you here, I'll let you tell the story. What was that weekend like for you?
1: It was amazing. Now, when you reached out to me and said, you know, I want to get experiencers together come up to the cabin and just hang out and talk and just get to know one another. And I'd never experienced anything like that before. I had met maybe one or two experiencers face-to-face before that. Um, most of my other correspondence was done through email uh, or, you know, Skype sessions. But after spending that weekend with you guys, uh, the floodgates opened and I just started going all over the country, spending every last time I had to see these people face to face, because that's when you get the real, real story. So when it came to this, I I didn't know what to expect, man. Honestly, I didn't know what to expect when I got there, and you guys were so warm and so welcoming. And, you know, our mutual friend Lee was there, and uh one person, who is the only pseudonym I used in the book... So
0: I did break my own rule there. Um, we we'll call. Good for her... you for breaking that rule. You break those rules. I know. Yeah. Rules, schmules. Yeah, that's what I say.
1: <laughs> breaking the own rules for the rebels, man. Um, we'll call her Rachel, uh, for the time being, and um, yeah, we all hung out and got to know one another. My my girlfriend Jane joined us as an outside eye to all this. She's interested in the topics, but she has no true stake in it. Here, like, here let me say, let me
0: butt in. Let me butt in. Yeah. Did we scare her? Did she get scared?
1: A little bit.
0: Okay. That's what we, because we would kind of, Andrew and I would kind of, you know, after the night was over, we'd like talk and we'd. So the so the setting was, I'll just explain people. I live in this beautiful old farmhouse and there is a gorgeous living room with a big fireplace and big windows. And it just feels beautiful and old and out in the woods. So um, we would all sit there at night. We have a great, big, beautiful dining room, and we'd all eat together, eat breakfast together, eat dinner together. And it was a really, really sweet couple of days. It was beautiful. I mean, it
1: was a writer's dream, right, to be honest. I felt like I was, you know, in heaven. I was like
0: Stephen King or something, just staying in this gorgeous, gorgeous inn. And yeah. Uh, oh, and then, and then what, what, what I was going to say is that, you know, Andrea and I kind of like after we would, we would come upstairs and we'd kind of go like, we'd go, I think we scared Jane.
1: <laughs> well, hey, by the end of it, man, I was the one who was scared. <laughs> um, now, if anyone reads this chapter in the book, I do go into um detail of your different experiences you've had throughout your life, weaved into sort of a present narrative as I'm experiencing this weekend with you guys in the woods. And uh, what was most profound for me about that weekend was, A, meeting a, uh, a shaman who I'd never met before and get their perspective on what we might be dealing with when it comes to quote unquote abductions or experiences or
0: close encounters. So that was really enlightening for me and opened me up to a lot. And this is this is Andreas and my friend Tom. And Tom is this big barrel-chested guy with, you know, he's got a gray beard and a and kind of a folksy way of talking you know he sounds like will rogers when he talks and he's you know comes in with you know a flannel shirt and blue jeans and and work boots and and uh, he's a remarkable guy he's really a remarkable guy and what what i remember is i could sense he knew what was going to happen cuz he, he could see some of tom's tattoos on his arms and stuff like that and finally as the night wore on he was like well i'm just going to do it and he took off his shirt and showed his back and i remember you just like you were Thunderstruck. I was astounded. Yeah, it, it was a work of art. I'll leave it at that, and I'll I'll try to describe it visually. It was it's a, it was a circle design, and it was around the edge of the circle were all these kind of interwoven beings. Basically, you know, there were animals and animal spirits, and in among all those animal spirits and such like that were gray aliens.
1: Yeah, it was. Very unexpected, but, you know, what better way to sort of hit someone and resonate than to just do it, just get it out there, and he did. <laughs> I, I will be honest, it was it was amazing, and um, I don't remember if it was that night, Mike, or the following night. I remember it was you, me, and uh, maybe Lee were by the fire, and uh, Jane had already gone to sleep, and I was getting tired, and I headed upstairs, And I got into bed, and I just remember at some point in the night waking up, and I heard a tapping on the window on the second floor of your inn, and I had no idea what it was. I'm like, is it a bird? Is it a branch? You know, it was windy. It was winter. Maybe it was tapping the window. I had no idea, but it woke me up out of a very deep sleep, just this small tapping. And then I had... What I can only describe is almost an out-of-body experience. I remember looking down at myself and seeing myself get out of the bed and go to the window. And then that's when I dropped back in my body. And I was terrified of whatever I was going to see out the window. I had no idea what to expect. But I legitimately like, thought I was about to have an experience. And it did, you know it hit me in that way because I was spending the weekend with all of you who have had some similar, but mostly different experiences. And I thought, this is it. This is how it's going to happen. I can't believe this is happening, but here we go. And I just remember you had a curtain in front of the window and I, I pulled it aside and I looked out and there was absolutely nothing there. And that might, you know, (laughs) <laughs> that might be anticlimactic, but for me, it wasn't even what could have been out there, or what was out there, or what wasn't. It was the most powerful moment of being in the shoes of an experiencer I'd ever felt. Now, I'm not saying anything was out there, but I was scared for my life that I was about to have my paradigm shifted and my entire reality change uh that night. And Luckily for me, nothing was out the window, and I just remember getting back into bed and falling asleep and just waking up the next morning and I could not wait to tell Jane what had happened. And um
0: I kept it to myself for a little while. I don't think I shared it with you. You did not share it with me. I didn't read it until I read it in the book. Andrea and I both read it and we're like, you know, hey, like you didn't even tell us. You didn't (laughs) Well, I
1: didn't know how to deal with it. I, I wrestled with it for a while, even to put it in the book because it almost seemed boring from a reader standpoint. I'm like, well, nothing happened, but I can't stress to you enough, like how immediate and just otherworldly it felt in those moments where I thought, oh my God, I'm about to have my first experience with a possible non-human intelligence. So yeah,
0: it was, it was interesting. I'm glad you got to read it in the book for the first time. <laughs> so I, so just that room. That room. So we run an inn, and I'm not going to use the name of the inn. Um, I've been here a little over five years, uh, and Andrew's been here a year longer. And the inn is closed now, given the issues in the country. Uh, that room. That's the room. Every once in a while, a few times, people have sort of said, "Do Do you have ghosts here? What's going on? What's What's going on?" And the pe- people see orbs in that room. Um, one woman. Talked to us the next morning, and she said she saw a uh, uh, a woman benevolent. She said this apparition of a woman was in the room, so that room does get a little a uh, little action. Now you tell me. No, I, we know didn't what? know that. I had only been here for three months when you arrived, so I had no idea. But in the intervening years, I've I can I can share that. Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, like pulling up to the house at night, seeing this house, what like how haunted does it look from the outside? Oh, well, I mean, again, <laughs> not giving away the location too much. Uh, it's located near what
1: was formerly a, what was it? Uh, a a tuberculosis, tuberculosis
0: research center. There we go.
1: So, I mean, the history alone and the things that have possibly happened in that area I can't even imagine the residual energy left behind there. So, it doesn't surprise me one bit. And yeah, I mean, pulling up at night is a little unsettling, but right. honestly, I love it. I love it. it I love this house. Yeah. Beautiful. I love this house. Yeah. It is so beautiful.
0: Uh, that's funny cuz so um there's a train station in town. The trains there's train tracks are or- not in use anymore, but there's a train station in town. It's kind of a touristy thing. And, and there was kind of this historian guy, this kind of old charismatic fellow who kind of talked about the town history. And he's at the train station talking to people. And, and I'm walking around the train station. He's kind of, you know, around. And, and the doors are huge on one side of the train station, like giant, like giant garage doors. Like they're old. They're like 150 years old, so they're on these funny little wheels that roll back and forth. And I kind of said, why is the door? What does the door need to be so big for? And he, like, looked right and left, like, making sure none of the tourists were there. And he said, the coffins. Because <laughs> the, the people would come to this town for tuberculosis treatment, which is true of a lot of towns in the Adirondacks, as well as in Arizona and Colorado and places. So people would come to this town because it's mountain, a town. And the thought was that – and it's actually – the cold air would minimize the the effects of tuberculosis. It didn't cure it, but it minimized the symptoms. Um and a lot of people came up here to die, like a lot, over 100 years, like a lot. <laughs> I could tell some stories about the. there's like streets that dogs won't go on in this town. So, Yeah,
1: I did have the opportunity to walk the grounds of the, the old tuberculosis place, too.
0: And it it was... Ugh. It's eerie. It's eerie. I ride my bike there all the time. And, and you ride your bike there at night. Let me tell you, it is like riding through a Stephen King novel. Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, I felt like I was in a novel that night, for sure.
0: Hey, one, there's one more story from this book. It deals with a fellow at a drive-in movie theater. Can you tell that one? That one I thought was so remarkable. Yeah,
1: this is one of my favorite stories in the book. I've uh, become very close with The Witness. Uh, we become good friends. He sent me most of his UFO library at this point, so uh, I... I love this guy. Uh, Scott Santa, he's a retired radio man, first class for the, uh, the Coast Guard, a retired postal service worker. So he's had an interesting life, but, um, it was even more interesting back in 1974 when he had a UFO sighting. Uh, this happened in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, and he went to a drive-in movie with his friend. You know, they pulled up and they found their spot and they just wanted to pass a summer night away and, um, You know, they're waiting for the movie to start. They're chitting and chatting. And his friend notices this object coming in from the distance behind, you know, the big movie screen that's out there. And it starts coasting, this object, towards the parking lot where all the cars are. And Scott said that uh, when he looked up and saw it, it was solid black, it was chevron-shaped, and it made absolutely no noise. And he also said... That, uh, there was this, like, feeling of, uh, just energy, like a vibration going through his body as he was looking up at this thing. So they both get out of the car and they watch this thing slowly coast over the parking lot. And at this point, Mike, everyone is out of their cars, just like staring up at this massive thing in the sky. And, uh, some people start freaking out and they get back in their cars to leave, but, um, what was really interesting is nobody's cars would start. So you sort of got this almost close encounters of the third kind thing
0: going on oh, where. You... Oh, that's very common. That's very common. The cars won't start. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: at this point, it's, um, the objects directly above the parking lot and Scott remembers feeling like time slowed down and everything around him was sort of hazy at this point. And, um, the weirdest thing about this. And this is the thing that really stuck out to me, and I'm sure it will, your listeners, is the thing disappears out of sight, okay? It goes over the parking lot, goes off into a distant field, and disappears. And what happens next? Scott goes to use the restroom, and nobody in the whole damn movie theater, outside movie theater, is talking about just what happened. They're all just dazed and uh, sort of, you know, continuing to wait in line at the bathroom, or getting in their cars, and just starting to watch the movie. The movie starts, and everyone just stayed and watched the whole movie. So I don't know if this was some sort of instant amnesia, or what was going on there, but um, it just happened, and nobody talked about what had just happened. They watched the movies, they all went home, and that was it. Scott didn't even really remember the thing happening until many years later when he saw a book with a UFO on the front and it triggered his memory and it all started flooding back to him. So he hasn't talked to that friend since that was with him. Um, he is wrestling with, you know, nobody else has come forward with this and I, people probably think I'm crazy or making stuff up, but I did have a really interesting development. I, I, I went back into all the old newspapers and everything
0: at the time to try to see. Oh, right on for you. Right on for you. That's actually tough to do, given if you got if your plate is full, that's a tough thing to do. You know, yes. So right on for you for playing the investigator.
1: Well, I thought, you know, I had a responsibility to do that, but also it was for him because this weight was on his shoulders of I'm the only one talking about this or even remembers it. So I started. Sort of just asking people around on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Like, was anyone in, you know, Cuyahoga Falls at this time and had something weird happen at a drive-in movie theater? And I'm not kidding you, someone reached out to me and said that they were there or they were near there and they saw it. So that blew my mind. I was just like, okay, and now hopefully Scott can connect with this person and start to unravel it together, so... Yeah, this is a fascinating case, very powerful, and like I said, Scott and I talk to this day about it, and uh, we're still trying to
0: find more witnesses. Well, good luck. I mean, yeah, so 1974 is a year that shows up a lot in my research, and, and I again, I'm sort of self-selecting, and I'm probably looking into it too much because I had my own experience in 1974, so I'm very, very hyper-aware of that year. And um, so, wow, that one, that one really... That one was really unsettling in the book, that story. And you know what? Honestly, like I've heard every nuance in that story individually. Like one person can't start the car. Maybe a couple people don't talk about it. Two people see UFO. They don't talk about it. One remembers it years later. That is normal. But to have a whole drive-in movie theater basically mimicking the single sighting, all the same things are happening, but with a huge group rather than just a few people in a car. That's, that's, that's telling.
1: It's something. And this instant amnesia thing. I mean, have you come across that in your research, Mike?
0: Like, all the time. All the time.
1: Yeah, that, I'm finding that out more and more as I dig deeper into interviewing these people and going there. Um, I will ask them, like, well, is this memory, like, is this from a year ago or instantly and I've had more and more people say like no I didn't even think about it for 10-15 years and then one thing triggered it so it's crazy the human mind is a brilliant and beautiful thing but I don't know whatever these phenomena are they are able to control it
0: or have some sort of power over it I don't know I don't know. They have got their hands on some dial. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's an unsettling thing to think that, like, your consciousness can be controlled by someone just as as easily as that. And there's flaws in it, obviously, like memories leak through. But, wow, my sense is that that this amnesia is probably much more powerful than we think. And, and my sense is, I can't prove this. I'm just, it's my gut talking here, is that there's a lot of people out there a lot more than we would dare guess that have probably had these experiences and have no memory at all. I can only imagine if all those memories started to come back where we would be in the research
1: at this point. But well, one other thing I wanted to add, Mike, is the human side to all of this. I know we touched on it in the beginning of our conversation, but for a lot of the people I've interviewed, as I'm sure you have too, it's not even the memory Itself or the details of what they saw, but They might not always remember what they saw, but they remember how they felt and that Really, really changed the course of the research for me. That is the point where I wanted to focus on how these people felt during the incident uh, before and even after and what that has done to them and how it's Changed their lives whether it's for the good or the bad and trust me It is a mix Of both for every person. Uh, But yeah, that that human side of all of this. Again, not so much who are in control of these craft, what intelligence lay behind these phenomena, but how is it changing us as human beings and putting that mirror back on ourselves?
0: Exactly. You have a book titled Somewhere in the Skies. What's the subtitle of that book? It is A Human Approach to an Alien Phenomenon. So this is something that That I, as I said before, like there's a weight that comes with this research because you are telling someone else's story. And this is a story that is not quite probably, but most significantly impacted their lives to some degree. Some people are more impacted, some people are less impacted, but these experiences change people's lives. I say seeing a UFO is a transformative experience. After you see it, you have transformed. You are no longer the person you were before.
1: Totally. I mean, I after my sighting, my life went down a path that I never expected or even wanted. I'd never thought about UFOs before I had that sighting. And now, look at where we are
0: today, having this conversation. So, Here's a question for you. Um, Totally speculation. What's your sense? Do you feel that maybe somewhere there was a grand chess player that could look forward and backward in time... And saw you on that dock or had you picked out on that dock and placed the chess pieces all in place so that you would have that experience so that you would write that book?
1: That is very possible. I mean, is there some sort of architect behind all of this? I, I truly don't know, but, you know, I, I've always sort of lived my life as, you know, one day at a time and, uh, you know, be as it may. Um, but the more I think about it, the more I do wonder, like, was this some sort of initiation into this bigger picture of what my life could be? Like you said, these things are deeply personal. And at the end of the day, I'm in this to find answers for myself as well. It is a very selfish pursuit uh, in the best of ways. So maybe, maybe this was a way of saying, look, we're here. We're ready to talk to you or to other people and uh, we just hope that you'll listen
0: this is a beautiful point to in end this interview and I just want to thank you so much this has been just a joy how do people get in touch with you?
1: oh I'm all over Facebook uh, Twitter I'm at at somewhere skies uh, you can check out the website where my podcast and everything is that's uh, somewhere in the Ryan thank
0: you this has been great
1: This has been extremely therapeutic for me, Mike, so I have to thank you for having me on, and it's been an honor,
0: truly. The honor is all mine. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Now, what you just heard was the end of our formal interview, but I'm going to sneak in just a little bit more of our conversation because uh, we didn't turn the recorder off and, and both him and I kept on talking and, and I'm going to add a little bit of that here and this is what happened right after we said our goodbyes. Here goes. Right on for us, podcasters. Hey nice, man. We hey, um, it. hey, before we leave, I just, you know what, I may tack this on at the end. Sometimes sure. I do a little outro. I just yeah. want to ask this one question. So we, and I, I'll just think, you know, so we're talking now we're out, totally off the cuff. We're out, formal interviews over. You are part of a TV show, mystery decoded. How's that going for you? Uh,
1: it's great. It was an experience that I never really anticipated, but, uh, I'm sort of taking it one, one case at a time. So far on the show, I've been able to investigate Roswell from a fresh perspective. Uh, who would have thought there would still be things we could learn about the Roswell incident? But we did find some interesting stuff. And then I also got to go to Area 51 in an episode, which was another bucket list. Wait a minute, you just, list. just the
0: outside? You didn't go inside, Just right? the outside. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course.
1: I should make that very clear. Yes, I did not storm Area 51. God bless um, you for that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we're continuing to look at some more mysteries in another season. Uh, I can't quite talk about what yet, but um, hopefully I'll have some news on that soon. But it's been a really, really interesting thing to see how, you know, television handles these topics, Mike. And as we've seen in many other cases, it's not always with the best of intentions or the best light on those involved. But uh, I will say this has been an extremely positive experience for me The people making the show have nothing but the utmost respect for what we do and for the people experiencing it and they just want the facts and i really respect that and appreciate that and i can't wait to see what we come up with next
0: do people has anyone recognized you like you're the guy from that show
1: uh you know i will get messages every now and again uh people being like oh you're on tv right now or um aren't you that guy but you know y- you take it with a grain of salt um and don't let your ego get ahead of you i'm just i'm just amazed that people are willing to um hear what i have to say and uh follow me on my pursuits that still shocks me to this day but um it- it's fun it's fun when you get those messages you know even oh, if you have yeah, a yeah, bad yeah. day or um things aren't going your way A message like that saying, Hey, I dig what you're doing and it was cool to see you up there doing what you do. I've had, you know, high school friends reach out to me that I haven't spoken to in twenty years and they're they're saying, Oh my God, you're on T V right now. So it's a way to connect with people. I love it. I love it. And um yeah, again, it's it's a journey in itself and I'm just along for the ride.
0: Good and yeah, and as I've said a few times in the show and yes, there's a responsibility. But you and I have a responsibility.
1: Yes, you know, if we're going to be given that platform to do this, we have to do it in the most honest way we can and the most empathetic way. And just remember, like, what the end goal is. And maybe it's to find answers. Maybe it's just to have this journey, just to keep those things in mind.
0: Right on. Right on for us podcasters. (laughs) We did it. Good. Okay, good. I just I might plug a little bit of that at the end. Cool. um, So sometimes I'll do that and just... And you know what I found is that oftentimes you do the formal interview and you ask the question and the person gives a very formal answer. And thank you for that answer. And then you ask the next question and then you say, and now the podcast is over. Thank you for being my guest. All of a sudden the conversation changes completely. It turns into this other thing. <laughs> and I've, I really recognize that. So I've often thought like, how do I get to that end part uh, right away? You you must hard. know exactly what I'm talking about.
1: Oh, dude. Yeah. I mean, I, And I was doing it tonight. I can, I can tell when I'm doing it, like you start performing. And I think that's just, that's just the way it is. That's human nature when you know someone's interviewing you and it's going to be heard by people. Like at least for me, coming from a theater background, like I immediately go into performance mode, but it is not easy, man. And you're right. Like by the end, that's when the, some of the, crazier stuff is said or the more uh, even after the end yeah yeah
0: yeah so i don't know but it's good that you do this because at least you're still recording i I don't do it at all the time but i used to do it on my old podcast i've been every once in a while i'll sneak a little bit in the in this newer podcast and and you know what i found is that i'm you know a lot of these stories i've told so many times i'm on autopilot but what i'm doing is like when i listen to the questions because i've I've done it since my books have come out, I could, got. A, I've been the guest on a hundred podcasts. But what yeah. I do is, like, I, I like, I like, I'm like, how can I take this question and just go? How deep can I go with yeah. this? With this kind of, you know, normal question, like, how can I take that question and just turn it into a, you know, like a, like a lens to see something even bigger, or even deeper. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's almost like, um,
1: you know, there's there's always a subtext under the question, and you just hope that like. They'll
0: get that, or it'll head that way. Or oh, and, and I'm um, thinking of me as a guest too. Yeah, where that too. I, Where I do that too, where I definitely
1: even yeah. So so yeah, if I can recommend anything, don't ever stop recording just because you say and we're wrapped. Because <laughs> yeah. there are times yeah. where I'm
0: like, oh my god, I got like pure gold there. But then you have to ask permission because they, they, oh, of course. They're, they're off. The, yeah. So all right, my man. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This was a fun interview for both of us. And hopefully you got some insights into what is involved in doing an online show like this. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.